You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We come today in our study of the Gospel of Matthew to the 47th verse of the 13th chapter. We're going to read to verse 52, Matthew chapter 13, verse 47. Our Lord says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Let's go to our God together and ask his blessing now on our time in his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning of worship. Where indeed would we be without your mercy? Where would we be without grace? Where would we be without Christ? We, your people, give you praise and thanks because we are rescued ones, delivered ones, redeemed ones, transformed ones. You've made us your own. You've joined us to our head, our Savior, our shepherd. You've forgiven us all our sins by his blood. You've clothed us in his righteousness. You've stationed us in your grace. We are yours not for a day or a time but for forever. Thank you, Lord, for this mercy to us. We are mindful of people in our midst, people who are hear me today in one way or another, either in this room or somewhere else at some other time even, hearing this sermon. Lord, people who don't know you, on their way to an everlasting judgment, we pray that you would save them. We pray that you would open their eyes Grant them a genuine repentance that embraces your Son for life. Would you be at work in my own mind and heart this morning, helping me, Lord, to teach the things that you've taught me? Would you be at work in our hearts as we listen to give you our best attention and to take into our hearts the things that you've given us in Scripture? May the result be transformed lives. Lord, I'm especially mindful given the text we'll look at tonight of the tragedy of being given spiritual privileges, living right in the midst of blazing light and not appreciating it, not recognizing it, being dull to it. I pray for those who've been in this church for many years, Lord, and especially young people raised in Christian families. We heard a testimony this morning of one raised in a Christian home, faithfully taught, only coming to recognize her lostness later. Lord, there are many in this church like that. Would you open eyes and grant repentance? 
We ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When the Apostle Paul met with the Ephesian elders for the last time, we read in Acts chapter 20 of something that he said that has a lot to do with the parables that we'll look at this morning, the two parables that finish the parables that Jesus gives in Matthew 13. In Acts chapter 20, verse 26, Paul said this, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That is a power-packed statement about preaching. The gravity of preaching, the seriousness of it. When he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all. I mean, what is at stake in preaching but lives? What is before us, even on a morning like this morning, except life and death, salvation or damnation? I'm innocent of the blood of all, he was able to say. The gravity of preaching, the sufficiency of preaching, that if indeed we preach the word as we are charged to do, we are preaching the message that is sufficient to deliver people from death and bring them into life. A message that delivers the preacher from responsibility, but imparts to the hearer responsibility. If we are faithful to declare the message, then we have done all that we can do. But if you have heard the message, then now life and death has been set before you and you have a choice to make. He says, I am innocent of the blood of all. How did you become innocent of this, Paul? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So what I was given to deliver to you, that I have delivered and that frees me of responsibility, but, but life and death is, is at stake and now has been put into the lap of those who've heard the message, the sufficiency of preaching and the responsibility of preaching because he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you. It indicates that it takes courage to say what God has said. There is the temptation to shrink back from it. There is the temptation to dull its edges, to distance yourself from its implications. Faithfulness in preaching means that we don't do that. Faithfulness in preaching means we say what God has said, and we say it without apology. We say it with all boldness because it deserves to be spoken boldly because it is the truth. The attitude and the conviction on display in that statement is explained by verses like these. The two parables that we come to today. You've seen, if, if you've been with us in Matthew, this chapter is full of these parables that Jesus is giving, both a token of judgment and a token of grace. Those who have, who have rejected the truths plainly spoken now hear the truth given in, in sort of a mystery form, parables, but those who have received the truth receive more as they come to Jesus privately and they have these parables explained to them. These two final parables in Matthew 13 combine to underscore what must be a conviction for all of Christ's disciples. What we're thinking about today is not just for preachers, it's not just for pastors, 
It's for everyone hearing me who is a Christian. Let me give it to you in a statement, and then we're going to think about it together. The way I would describe it is this. The judgment that is coming at the end of the age imparts a responsibility to all of Christ's disciples to declare the whole counsel of God while we have the opportunity. The judgment that is on its way, the judgment that is coming at the end of this age imparts a responsibility to all of Christ's disciples to declare the whole counsel of God while we have the opportunity. Because the day is coming when we will no longer have the opportunity. The judgment will be here. The judgment will have arrived. Let's think about that as we look at these final two parables. First of all, the parable of the dragnet. Listen as Jesus declares it again. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Once again, Jesus taking something well known to these people. And using that illustration to declare the truth, segene is the word for the dragnet there, a sane, a dragnet. The lexicon has this, a large net hanging vertically with floats at the top and sinkers on the bottom. So it was designed that once it's put into the water, it hangs down vertically. It's, it's floating at the top, top of the net floating at the surface of the water, but then the weights take the net down into the water, deep into the water, and you drag this net. Sometimes it was, it was um, between two boats and they would travel and drag the net that way. Sometimes they would tie one end of the net to something on the shore, then take the other end out with the boat and then circle back around and drag it to the shore. And it was, it was designed to drag stuff in indiscriminately. It just drug in everything in its path, which would mean that when it arrived at the shore, you had a variety of fish. And then those who were working the net would sit down on the beach and they would begin to separate what they had dragged in. And the fish that were not worthy of consumption would be discarded, and the fish that were worthy to be sold in the market or to be consumed, those fish were put into containers something very common, everyday stuff. People knew exactly what Jesus was describing. But it has a spiritual application in this case. Verse 49, Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age. Something you see every day in your world, something you witness, this dragnet being pulled in, people sitting on a beach, separating out the catch, that is comparable what it's going to be like when this age is over, when it comes to its conclusion. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
This, you will recognize, the interpretation of this parable is really the same as the parable of the tares. The wheat and the tares existing together in the field until the time of harvest. And then the tares are gathered into bundles and they're burned and the wheat are gathered into the barns of the field owner. Jesus said that also pictures the end of the age. But there's a slight difference in emphasis in this parable. In the parable of the tares, what was being emphasized is coexistence. What is going to happen until the judgment? Which is why at the end of that explanation of that parable, Jesus talks not only about the destiny of the wicked, he also talks about the destiny of the righteous. The wicked are going to be judged, but the righteous are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But until then, you see, we need to have our expectations set appropriately. We are going to coexist right in the midst of a very wicked world, right alongside the sons of the evil one. The sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one coexist until the end of the age. That was the purpose. That was the emphasis of the first parable. This one, you'll notice, only emphasizes judgment. So that the first parable speaks of coexistence until the judgment. The second parable speaks of the certainty of the judgment. The judgment will certainly arrive. This age will certainly end. Judgment is surely coming. It's like a dragnet as it moves throughout the ages, but it will eventually arrive at the shore. And when it does, there's going to be this separation. And when the separation occurs, the wicked will be judged. And Jesus not only emphasizes the certainty of the judgment, he emphasizes the awfulness of it, the woefulness of it, The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is surely coming and it is surely going to be awful. Now, what I want to do at this point is just emphasize something that really applies to all of the parables. I want to emphasize the reality of these things. Jesus is taking something well-known, using it to teach about something either unknown, right, the mysteries of the kingdom, or something not really well-known. Said another way, as surely as the illustrations involved real things, people fished like this, the nets existed like this, the process happened like this. These are real things, and just as real as the illustrations are, so the things being illustrated are real. We haven't seen it yet. It hasn't arrived yet, but be sure of this. As sure as you are sitting in your seat in this auditorium, what Jesus describes in these verses is going to take place. The reality on display in all of these parables So I want to mention six, six realities on display in that parable we just read. First of all, the reality of an end-time program. The reality of an end-time program. More than once in these parables, what is Jesus doing? He's telling us about the future. 
What is going to happen when he returns, when he returns to usher in his kingdom on earth? There's a form of the kingdom that's in existence at this very moment, but there is a form of the kingdom that is, has not yet arrived, and, and it's coming for certain. And the reason why he can reveal the mysteries of the kingdom is because all of this has been planned before time. All of these things are on God's calendar, set forth in the eternal counsels of God, and now being worked out through time, through history, in this world. History has a designer, God. History has a determiner, God. Things are not just happening. Things are happening with a purpose, according to a plan, marching on without interruption until they finally arrive at the end that God has destined. That's what's happening in this world. Do you believe that? Are you convinced of that? See, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means we've come to know the truth. He is the truth, and everything that He reveals is the truth. And we are a people who believe the truth so that we know that everything in this world, everything that's happening in history, everything is safe in the hands of the God who created this world and sustains it. He didn't just create and he doesn't just sustain the material creation, but he creates and sustains the ages. He's in charge of history. We are not in charge of history. Man does not control the future. Man is not going to change anything that God has decreed. Do you sometimes, Christian, do you, do you find yourself a little disturbed, maybe even a little afraid of what's happening in the world? Maybe you think to yourself, you know, they're these powerful figures. They have all sorts of money and influence. There are probably some private meetings happening somewhere in the world, world leaders and movers and shakers, and they're putting together all these plans. And what is it going to mean for all of us? Can I tell you something? If you think of man as if he has control over the ages, you are wasting your time and energy in imagination. What does man control? Nothing. God is sovereign. We are not. And what that should mean for us is we should be a people. Out of all the people on the face of the planet, we are a people who can know peace in this world, no matter what is happening. Why are people so afraid? Why is our world full of constant anxiety, upheaval, unrest, well, think about how the lost man thinks about his own existence. I mean, if you don't believe the Bible, then you believe that, that mankind is just the result of chance. Something that, that nobody knows about, nobody can explain, brought it all into existence, and somehow we all arrived here, which means there was no purpose that stood behind our beginning, and there's no purpose that stands right now behind our course, and there's no purpose toward which we're headed, which means that ultimately the only thing that matters in my life right now is what I think and what I believe and what I desire and what I'm going to pursue because it all has no real meaning, which of course invests man 
with a sense of control that he doesn't possess. Which is why you hear the kind of nonsense like we're going to save the planet. And make no mistake about it, there are people who do think like that. They think we do bear responsibility and possess the ability to control the future. I'm not talking about responsibility under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. God indeed does charge us with certain things we're to manage and take care of. But all of it is to acknowledge His sovereignty over all things. Lost mankind doesn't understand it that way. There is no God. There is no real purpose. There is no real meaning. And so everything now rests with us. The world will be what we will make it. And we have our own vision of what it ought to be and the, you know, our own sense of, of paradise. And then we're going to pursue it and bring it to pass in our own strength and with our own abilities and our own resources. So I, I do not dismiss the idea that somewhere in the world there are people plotting. They have their plans. They have what they think they're going to bring into existence. And somewhere there's some madman who's thinking like that. But what you need to know is God laughs at it. Psalm 33, verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Nations make their plans. Peoples make their plans. This is what we're going to do. And God brings it to nothing. The second Psalm, the first verse, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Who are we church? We're a people who know the one who controls the future. And it's not us. It's not any, any human being. It's, it is God. So this, what it ought to do is grant peace to us in a world that is indeed mad in its sin, insane in its sin. We're a people who know the one who controls today and tomorrow and all the tomorrows. But that comes down to a personal level, doesn't it? It's not just peace with respect to world events. It's peace with respect to our personal events. The same God who controls all of history controls your life. He formed us in our mother's womb. The Bible says that all of our days were written down in his book before we had lived one of them. Do you know that your lifespan has already been determined? How many days you and I are going to live is already written down in God's book. So all of our fretting over that, all of our anxiety over that, what does it change? Nothing. Nothing. All of our issues are in His hands. Anyone wringing your hands today over your finances? Your financial issues are in His hands. Upset over your health issues? Your health issues are in His hands. Upset over trouble in the realm of relationships? Someone heartbroken sitting here today because of what's happening in your marriage or what's happening with your children? Your relational issues are in his hands. I want to be very careful. I want you to hear me carefully. I'm not saying 
that because God is sovereign, what happens in this age has no consequence. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that the issues are not real. They are very real with real consequences, a lot at stake, real pain, real heartache can be known in this age. What I'm saying, however, is the one who holds it all in his hands is God, and he is your father. He knows about it all. He has control over it all. He loves you in and through it all. You can rest in his care for you, which is exactly what we learned in the Sermon on the Mount. The world is in constant concern over how it's going to eat and how it's going to live and what it's going to wear and all of that. Your father knows that you need these things so that whatever is happening in our lives, we can be sure of this. There's a purpose. You've got a financial struggle. Does God have the ability to to, to supply you with money? Does he have any trouble with that? Anybody here, can you testify there have been times that just at the right time in ways you never envisioned, God met a need in your life? So so if right now you're, you're in a time where it's tight, there's a lesson to be learned. There's something more going on than just finances. And the same can be true, the same is true and can be said of your health issues and your relational issues and everything else. God is sovereign over you, not just over the world, not just over history. He's sovereign over you. The reality of an end time program. Jesus is able to talk about the future because the future is fixed in the mind and heart and decrees of God, which is why he can tell you before it happens what is going to happen. The reality of judgment, this is the second reality I'll mention. The reality of judgment on that calendar is judgment. You can be sure of this. Men count God's patience to mean indifference. People, sinful people think to themselves, if I haven't been judged by God yet... Either he doesn't exist or he doesn't care. Somehow I've gotten away with it. There are lots of wicked things happening in our world right now. Men and women behaving as if God doesn't know, God doesn't care, and God will not judge. But his word speaks to that, to that mistaken idea. You're wrong if you think that God's patience toward you means that he's excusing you. You're wrong to think that just because you haven't been judged yet, you won't be judged in the end if you don't repent. His judgment is certainly coming. Psalm 94, verse 1, O Lord, God of vengeance, God, O God of vengeance, it's repeated, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. O understand Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? 
He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Have you confused God's patience with indifference? Have you confused His mercy with a lack of commitment to His own holy name? He is not just the God of love. In Psalm 94, He's called God of vengeance. And this raises the most important question for any soul. If the God of vengeance judges today, what is your relationship to Him? If the judgment arrives today, if the dragnet reaches the beach today, and the righteous are separated out, and the wicked are separated out, and the wicked are judged forever, what kind of a fish are you? Into which group do you get separated? To whom do you belong? Do you know the living God? Do you love Him? Do you love His Son? Are you His subject? Are you in the kingdom? The reality of an end-time program, the reality of judgment that belongs to that end-time program. Third reality I'd like to point out, the reality of angels. The reality of angels. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth. From where? We can presume what he means is from heaven. The angels will come forth from a realm that we cannot see, from a realm that we have never seen, they will then become visible. Anybody here ever seen an angel? If the answer is yes, please make your way out. Um, (laughs) You haven't, have you? I haven't. But you can be sure of this, you will. You will one day. The angels truly exist. They will come forth and they will be the agents exercising the will of Christ as they separate out the wicked for the purpose of judgment. The Bible tells us about the angels, tells us of their abilities to communicate and reason and choose, tells us of their power and majesty. Sometimes God uses them, assigns them work that makes them agents for protection. Sometimes God assigns them work that makes them agents for destruction, holy destruction. And one day soon, the angels will be used by God to gather out of His kingdom all of those who are stumbling blocks... That is, they lead others into sin, those who are lawbreakers. Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. I think about this sometimes, things that we have not yet seen. And so we begin to treat it like it's not real because we've never seen it. And I think about God's mercies to us. These are warning mercies when He allows things to come to being in our lifetimes that people once mocked, scoffed at, said, you know, something like that is fanciful. It's a fairy tale. It could never come to pass. God allows some of those things that you and I had not yet seen to be right there in front of us. We see it now just to testify to us that everything He says that we've not yet seen, we will one day see. I think about some examples like the nation of Israel on her own land, the land that God gave her, 
There were thousands of years where that seemed impossible, cannot happen, will not happen. In fact, as the Lord brought them back to their land and and granted that nation an existence, it defied human ability. I mean, the way it came to pass, read about it. I don't think it's too strong to say. Miraculous things that happened that allowed that nation to exist again on its land. People doubted it, scoffed at it. There it is. The book of Revelation talks about one world governance. Nobody's ever going to think like that, right? One world monetary system. A world in which you can't travel, you can't buy, you can't sell unless you receive what the governing authorities say you're to receive. That'll never happen, will it? And yet things have come to pass in our own lifetimes that show us how near something like that actually is. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. What we've seen so far is not eschatological fulfillment. This is not what the book of Revelation is talking about. Not yet. But it's kind of a pre-filament, isn't it? It's, it's just a, a merciful indication to the people alive right now. What I talk about in my book will come to pass. Don't doubt the Word of God ever. What it says is reality. Please silence your phones if you would, dear ones. So, the end-time program of God, it's a reality. The judgment talked about in that end-time program, it is reality. Things like the angels gathering out sinners for the purpose of judgment, that's reality. That's not fairy tale. People are going to see it one day. The reality of the horror of that judgment will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People sometimes say, are we talking about flames? Like in your fire pit in the backyard? Are we talking about flames like on your barbecue grill? I mean, are we talking about literal flames? Here's what we need to know. It is true to say the Bible communicates to us in terms that are fit for our capacity. Anthropomorphic communication, right? God speaks to us as men and women in ways we can understand. That's true. So sometimes what God is speaking of, we need to understand this pictures, this this somehow represents what the reality is going to be. But here's where people make their mistake. They want to think, that because God is speaking to us in terms that are fit for our capacity, somehow what is going to be real is going to be less than the words represent. When in fact, the reason why God is fitting his descriptions to our capacity is because there are not words that could ever capture what the reality is going to be. The reality is not going to be less. The reality is going to be greater than the words can represent. I'll say it to you this way. Everlasting wrath is not going to be milder than these kinds of descriptions. Everlasting wrath is going to be more awful than these kinds of descriptions. Do you fear the wrath of God? Do you believe God when he tells you how awful his wrath is for the sinner who doesn't repent and receive his son? Think about the terms that the Bible does use to convey this judgment to us. 
darkness. People imagine, I'm going to go to a place, if I don't go to heaven, I'll still go to a place where the lights are on, where where there are people like me who think like me and live like me and desire the things I do. We'll we'll just, I'll just, there there are even songs that have been written like this. I'll just have a, a party in hell. No, the Bible speaks of outer darkness, which speaks not only of of separation from the accepting presence of God, but an isolation in that darkness. Fire, flames, torment, thirst, misery. And what makes it most fearful is it is eternal People want to imagine what's going to happen. Okay, so even if the, if the Bible's descriptions are accurate, they'll be suffering for a time, and then I'll just go out of existence. The Bible does not indicate that at all. Rather, if you think about the body in the grave and worms consume it, this wrath is described in terms of the worm not consuming. So the worm doesn't die. It goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And perhaps what is most hellish is there's no hope of it ever changing. Think about how people get hopeless in a world where there's still hope. There's a new day. There's a new opportunity. Something can change. It can be different Once you arrive at the day of judgment, once the net is on the beach, once the fish are being separated, there is no hope. It's fixed, it's final, it's settled, it's done, and it's going to be for forever, and there will be no escaping it. Matthew 8, 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty-two thirteen. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty-five thirty. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. Luke 16, 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. I want you to remember that after the great white throne judgment, we read about this in Revelation chapter 20, there's going to be a resurrection unto 
everlasting wrath. So just like believers will be given new bodies fit for an everlasting existence in the accepting presence of God, the damned will be given new bodies that will never die, fit to experience everlasting death in a place of real wrath outside the accepting presence of God, in the outer darkness. And in a way we don't fully understand, we, un- we do know that there will be degrees of suffering in hell. It's not all exactly the same. And how much light you've received and how much light you've rejected will figure into your everlasting damnation if you leave this life without Christ. But what is the same for everyone is that it's outer darkness and it is personal misery. Weeping, that's sadness. Gnashing of teeth, that's pain. Do you believe the reality of the horror of the judgment that God has given us in His Word? An end-time program, that's real. Judgment is real. Angels, things you can't see right now, it's real. And the horror of that judgment is real. Let me give you a fifth reality on display in this parable. The reality of God's patience. The reality of God's patience. Because the net, to use the application, the net has not yet arrived at the beach. It's being dragged. It's being gathered in. It's gathering everything in. No one escapes it. No human being escapes it. Everyone's going to be dragged to the end. And then the righteous and the wicked will be separated. You have an opportunity right now to receive the grace and mercy of God in the preaching of the gospel of God's Son who loves sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There are no sweeter words to any of our ears than those words. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to save good people. There are not any, not by God's standards. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinner, do you hear him? He came to save you. Turn from your sins, trust in the Son of God. And when that great separation day arrives, you will be gathered into God's kingdom forever. But reject that mercy and you will be judged forever. And it will be a just judgment. Because you will reflect on that day, on days like this day, when God gave you every opportunity to turn from your sins and trust in His Son. You will not be able to claim ignorance. You will not be able to claim a lack of love on God's part or a lack of grace on God's part or a lack of mercy on God's part. The good news is set before you today. Jesus saves sinners. Will you receive him for your salvation? Knowing if you do that he is Lord, he's going to take over your life. He's not going to leave you like you are. He'll take you. He'll receive you right where you are, right where you are, but he will not leave you where you are. He will not only forgive your sins, he will change your life. And if you desire him, he will not turn you away. He will not refuse you. But if you refuse him with holiness, he will exult in your judgment. God is patient. The opportunity for salvation is still there. The door of mercy is still open. 
We're not there yet. It's coming. It's going to arrive. But we're not there yet. Will you receive Christ today? And don't say to yourself, well, maybe tomorrow. Because dear friend, your tomorrow is not guaranteed. Your life might end today. This might truly be the last day the opportunity is ever presented to you. The sixth reality is the reality that Jesus is the Messiah and His kingdom will triumph. The world doubts it, the world mocks it, the world laughs at it, but the day will come when the net arrives at the seashore and what will be on full display is that Jesus is Lord. The angels will go forth on His command, the separation will occur, the judgment will happen, the ushering in of His earthly kingdom will take place, and the whole world will no longer have any doubt about the truthfulness of the Bible, the truthfulness of the gospel, the truthfulness that Jesus is Messiah, the truthfulness of the kingdom. It will be proven and undeniable. What a way to end these parables with warning. But there's one more. Won't take as long at all. It's very straightforward. Look at verse 51. Follows a question. Have you understood these things? Have you understood all these things, these parables I've been giving you, men? Do you grasp them? Do you comprehend them? Do you know what I'm saying? They said to him, yes. And he doesn't rebuke them for that. He doesn't even question that. These men still don't totally get it, but at this stage of their development, they are grasping what he's talking about. They are understanding the mysteries of the kingdom. And he says to them in verse 52, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. A homeowner has a storehouse. When needs arise, he has things that he's had for a long time and he has things that he's recently acquired. And all of those things are at his disposal to meet the needs that he desires to meet, to, to accomplish the things that he means to accomplish. Very simple, very straightforward. And so Jesus says to them, listen, every scribe, every teacher of the law, every teacher of the Word of God who's become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like that man. You'll have the things long revealed before I came, and you'll have the things that have now been revealed and are going to be revealed since I've come. And what you are called to do, have you understood these things? We have. Okay, so what does this impart to you? You know this truth. What responsibility does this impart to you? You've got to be like that head of household who brings out of his treasure. Right? You don't keep it in the storehouse. But you're bringing it out, things old, things new, the whole counsel of God. You bring it out and you declare it while you have the opportunity. The judgment is coming at the end of the age, which imparts a responsibility to every disciple of Christ to declare the whole counsel of God, things old, things new, while we have the opportunity. Because the day is coming that that opportunity will be gone. If you can see that, if you understand these things, would you say amen? Are we doing it? 
Are we prepared for that day of judgment? Have we heard the Lord and believed Him? Believed Him about the awfulness of it, but also believed Him about His mercy and grace and the opportunity so that we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Have you received Him? Do you know Him? You prepared for that judgment? And for every one of my brothers and sisters that you know Jesus, what has been put in your hands? This world lives as if man controls the future. We know better. We know of the end time program. We know of the judgment that's coming. We know of the angels. We know of the end of the age. We know of the only hope man has. We have it in our storehouse. Paul says, I am innocent this day of the blood of you all because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Don't you want to be able to say one day, you don't have blood on your hands? Because you, you were bold and courageous with a message that deserves boldness. Because it's the truth. And in a world full of wickedness, in a world full of the sons of the evil one, in a world where you will surely be mocked and derided for believing the things you believe, you, with humility and love, a genuine concern about, for the people you're proclaiming it to, wanting to stand at the very precipice of hell and rescue people. Are you proclaiming what you know? May the Lord strengthen us to see this. Do you understand these things? May He increase our capacity to understand it. And then may He grant us the faithfulness to proclaim it. And then rejoice as we see souls rescued before it's too late. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this entire series of parables that we've studied together. And thank you for how they have closed. Thank you for the message that we have received this morning. Lord, would you drive these things deep into our hearts and produce in and through us that which pleases you. May we understand the gravity of preaching and the sufficiency of preaching and the responsibility of preaching to declare this good news while we have opportunity because the judgment is coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.